guys there? Yep. Yeah, I'm here. I'm just sure. checking the sound levels to see how you guys sound. Okay. All right. This is this is me. How can do I sound? You sound good. I can hear you. Yeah. You sound good. Okay, so I'm going to start by reading the intros. And if I say anything that's incorrect, stop me and I'll correct it, okay? So sure. you're, you're welcome. You're each welcome to jump right in. But these are the intros, the official intros. And, you know, actually, I was criticized um, by, well, by several people over the years for, like, your intros are too long, you know. And then somebody recently <laughs> said it was a vibe killer. And you know what? I wish they were longer. I it's important to me to establish the credibility of my guest ahead of time, because there's so many people out there with no credentials and no credibility that are speaking. And I like to lay it all out there. You know, I want to know who I'm talking to and I want the audience to know who they're hearing and why they're worthy of being interviewed. So, um, Dan, Sounds I've got, cool. a, I've got a lot on you, Darren. Um, I've got, uh, you know, what you sent me, but if there's anything to add, we'll add it here. So, um, here I go. You guys ready? I think I got it covered for me. Yeah. Okay. But like I said, the more, the better. I want it all. Okay. So I'm going to start. How long will this go for about? Will this go for about an hour or so? Yeah. Yeah. When we're, when we're done, we, you know, we'll stop. Okay. All right. This is Laura London, and you're listening to the second episode of the new quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung. In this new series, I'll be recording informal discussions with my friends on their areas of expertise. These talks will be candid, explicit, and unedited. Joining me today are my friends, astronomers Daniel Joyce and Darren Drake. Dan Joyce studied chemistry and political science at Marquette University and was enrolled in their Navy ROTC program when everything got interrupted by a skiing accident. After 14 months in a cast and a brace, he was told by his doctor to find work to help recover from his leg injury. That catapulted Dan into a lifelong career in astronomy. He has been a member of the Chicago Astronomical Society since 1970, and served seven terms as president and continues to sit on their board of directors. He is a founding member of the Northwest Suburban Astronomers and became an original member of the Chicago Society for Space Studies, a local chapter of the National Space Society, formerly the L5 Society. He became a life member of the Peoria Astronomical Society in 1987 when he completed the primary mirror of all 101 pounds and 5,200 times the light-gathering power of the human eye that it is, for their Jubilee Observatory site. He has worked on various telescope designs at the Adler Planetarium Optical Shop, where he continues to make high-precision optics. His claim to fame is the... What, what was the size of the telescope for Lucas? It was a 10-inch. Um, I want to interrupt one second. I don't continue to. I knew you were going to catch me on that. that. <laughs> it just sounded better. I know. We'll get into that later. Okay. His claim to fame is the 10 inch telescope he made for movie director George Lucas. For the last 15 years, Dan has been a member of the Chicago and Northern Illinois chapters of the American Meteorological Society. 
He was a student of WGN-TV's Tom Skilling, studying the weather from the standpoint of the forecaster and how to recognize severe weather. He once provided details on an errant Soviet spy satellite, and since then has been Tom's astro-go-to guy, eventually becoming the writer of the Daily Planet Watch column on the Chicago Tribune's weather page. Dan continues his work as a weather spotter and storm chaser. He has taught astronomy and the weather at the College of DuPage for 25 years and is a former program presenter at the Cernan Earth and Space Center at Triton College. Darren Drake earned his Bachelor of Science from Illinois State University, where he specialized in astronomy. He has taught in Chicago area schools at the secondary and collegiate level for the past, is it 30 years? It's about right, yes. For the past 30 years. He is the former planetarium show operator and outreach educator at the Cernan Earth and Space Center, home of a 93-seat planetarium located on the campus of Triton College in the Chicago suburbs, where they host star parties and a monthly skywatch. The Space Center was named after NASA astronaut and last man on the moon, Gene Cernan, a native of nearby Bellwood, and Maywood, Illinois. Darren spends every summer at Camp Eberhardt in Three Rivers, Michigan, where he acts as resident astronomer at the Yarger Astronomy Center, where he gives campers the opportunity to discover the inner astronomer in themselves. His passion is in sidewalk astronomy, setting up telescopes on the street for passers-by in downtown areas. He owns an 18-inch reflector telescope and is active and well-known in astronomy outreach throughout the Chicago area. This episode is being recorded on Wednesday, May 6th, 2020, through the magic of Skype. Hey, guys. Hello. Jump right in. Where should we start? Well, it's kind of too bad that um, right now, uh, Darren and I, being interested in outreach, and uh, showing off the night sky to uh, people, uh, whether it's uh, sidewalk astronomy, as we call it, or whether it's a, a formal event at one of the nature centers nearby, um, with, with this coronavirus around, right. we can't do that. Yeah. And so I'm very disappointed. Well, I'm we, glad we you really mentioned that. Doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the reasons why I wanted to have you two on the show today is because... A lot of people are spending more time at home, if not all their time, and there are things we can do from home. And you don't have to have a telescope. I mean, it's great if you do, but I'd like for you both each to tell the audience, I mean, uh, you know, we were in getting ready for this episode, we were kind of overwhelmed with all the different topics we could cover. And one of the things that, that you've both or maybe it was Darren taught me is how to use apps on my phone, on my tablet. And I mean, you guys know where I live. I don't want to talk about it publicly, but um, it's, there's a lot of light pollution in Chicago and I don't have any outdoor space. And so there are things that I can see from my window that just blow me away. You have to know where to look and when. So I want to first at the top in case we lose anybody, talk about what people can do in this lockdown on their own with their phones or with their computers. 
All right, if I might, um, uh, say 10 or 20 years ago, uh, if someone was interested in getting in the hobby. And this is I'd Darren talking, get, right? Yes. Okay. I would tell them to get um, uh, maybe a, a book on the night sky and a pair of binoculars and get out in their backyard and, and practice learning the night sky with the aid of star maps. But today, it is quite a bit of a different story. Um, you, as you can use your phone and apps that are free, and they can move on all the way up to pro versions mm -hmm. that let you literally hold the phone up and see the night sky as you would see it on a star map as you hold your phone up to the sky. And so you can uh, wonder what a particular bright object is up there and hold the phone up and you would instantly see that it's, say, a planet, Jupiter or Venus, or it could be the bright star Arcturus or something like that. So you really don't even need to buy star map anymore. Just familiarize yourself with some simple phone apps. There's okay, so plenty of what is an example? Yeah, what is an example of a free app? Because I had that one when I used to use the Starbucks app. They would send you a link to a free app once a week. This was a few years ago, and I loved that app. Um, I don't remember the name. I'm of not it. sure what you had, but the one that I found that I just need no more to search. It's called Sky Safari. And there is, I believe, a free version, and there's uh, several levels above that. And I use the pro version that can do so much, it's unbelievable. It can even control my telescope wirelessly. Mm -hmm. And so Sky Safari has the ability to, <laughs> among other things, match the night sky as you hold it up and uh, show you what you're looking at. And it would work in the daytime. It would work indoors. It doesn't matter. It will know what direction your phone is pointing and show you literally what stars or constellations you're aiming at as you hold the phone up. And it will even go through the ground if you imagine looking below the horizon. So that, that's one really good way to start by learning the night sky uh, by using one of these phone apps. And the one, again, I say I use is Sky Safari, but I'm sure it would be very easy to find any number of other versions or apps that are similar out there. Yeah, Dan, uh, a little Dan, bit more on, on, the, on that topic. Um, you can actually improvise and place a slot on your telescope, staying near your focus mount, and place the phone in that slot and use it as an aiming device for your scope, like mm -hmm. a like a finder scope. Um, and uh, for instance, if you're in light polluted skies, and you want to show off in the telescope uh, an object we call the Beehive Star Cluster. It's in Cancer. Uh, we know it's roughly halfway in between the brightest stars in, in Demony, which are Castor and Pollux, and the brightest star in Leo, which is uh, Regulus. But if you have this phone with that app on it, and, and it's on a, it's spotted it's in so it's connected to where the telescope is aiming, similar to a finder scope, you can uh, wander through the sky, aim it in that general direction, and and it'll point it out to you exactly where it's at. Now, uh, by is, doing is is there an at home telescope that you guys, either of you, would recommend? Maybe people can find on Amazon, like a cheap one, yes. and then and then eventually yes. we'll talk about the huge ones that you each have. But what would you recommend? Yes. Um, I recently got a call from my friend. Uh, Greg at Celestron to 
write up a review for a new technology telescope that they're offering. That's a low budget telescope for beginners. And I jumped on it. I got it and wrote a review up. And um, what it is, is it's called the Celestron StarSense DX. And you can get either the reflector version or the refractor version um, for in the neighborhood of three or $400. There's a couple of different choices. But the main idea is built on what we've just said, only it goes a couple steps above. It lets you literally mount your phone on the mount of the telescope. And in it, there's a mirror that uh, reflects into your camera. Okay. And the app that you download will take a picture of the sky in real time and therefore tell the telescope exactly where it's pointing to mm-hmm. high precision. Mm-hmm. And if you put that you want to look at a particular object, such as the beehive or any other one of many hundreds of objects, it will tell you exactly where, how to aim it with arrows. And then as you zoom in on it, it continues to take pictures of the sky and compare it to pictures in its database and do what it calls plate solving. And then in real time, it will let you zoom in on the object when it gives you a green box on your phone. Mm -hmm. And then you should be able to look through the eyepiece and there will be the object. Mm -hmm. It's pretty simple. You, you mentioned and, um, that it's three to four hundred dollars, and I also I yeah. just want to remind everybody everything that Dan and Darren mention, if possible, I will provide a link to it in the show notes on the website speakingofyoung.com for this episode, which is episode Q two. So three to four hundred might sound affordable to some people, but it might not to others. Is there any super low budget telescope out there? Um, that's Actually, important. That's that's important. Would be binoculars. Binoculars, um, okay. Yes. Because and the answer. Yeah, go ahead, Darren. Okay, the answer, um, and that's a good question. Um, it's important to point out that about ninety-five percent. This might come of a surprise, but about ninety-five percent of all telescopes that people have mm-hmm. are junk. Are junk. They're really yes. Believe okay. it or not, they're okay. very difficult to use. They're very low quality in every way. Yeah. Wobbly tripods, low quality eyepieces, hard to find and point things at. And they end up being a source of frustration more than anything. And people can lose interest in the hobby just because they bought what they thought was going to be a good telescope because it might have cost $200, which sounds like a lot. But the answer is to really get a telescope that is going to grab you and get your attention and and be uh, something that's going to carry you on into the future, you're going to have to spend more than 100 or $200 okay. in general. Okay. Yeah. So there, there are other ways, there are ways around that, like by yeah. buying used and Craigslist, but that's a slightly different direction. But it is important to know that most people have telescopes. When they tell me they have a telescope, and then I ask what kind they have, they start to describe something that is not a quality instrument. Like a and toy. So, when I was a kid, yeah, I had a telescope, exactly. but it was basically a toy, and I couldn't find anything. Right. Exactly. That source of frustration is very, very common. So, Dan, well, what... That's one of the best ways of, uh, I'm sorry, just uh, mm-hmm. uh, to point out that if you, if you, you don't even have to join these local astronomical societies. You can just go to their meetings or maybe one of their public events whenever they get going again, um, because we're, obviously we're shut down by coronavirus right now. But if you can uh, join up with one of their uh, events, whether it's a meeting or whether it's one of their public uh, outreach events at 
uh, one of the uh, local um, maybe nature centers. Um, you can check out what telescopes are there and see what 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 might fit your needs um, because they're ready they're uh, readily going to tell you um, how much was put into it, whether they had to work on it themselves. In some cases, we, uh, we do all the work ourselves. We make them ourselves. Um, Which you do, right. And you had mentioned yeah, right. binoculars. So would you tell us yeah. the difference between what you're able to see with binoculars and what you're able to see with a telescope? What's the difference? All yeah. right. Well, um, a pair of binoculars will have what we call high light concentrating power um, because they don't over-magnify. And they're looking at um, larger chunks of the sky at once than, uh, than, a, than a telescope. So it's easier to track down what you want to find. Now, you're not going to see a very big image of what, of what you actually track down. Um, but for many of the objects in the sky, that's not really a, 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 big, a big problem. For instance, uh, the Andromeda galaxy spans uh, a length about nine moon diameters across. That's really big. Mm-hmm. But you have to have dark enough sky to do that. Um, Otherwise, you're probably going to see the, the internal core from around the city. But um, uh, because it can concentrate the light down harder than a telescope can, sometimes it can show things um, quite a bit more, uh, with quite a bit more detail, a surprising amount of, amount of detail compared to a telescope. Orbit. Really? Like if you're looking yeah. at Mars, let's say, and you want to see the polar ice caps or dust storms. Well, that, that, that. That, that, that you have to have a telescope for. The planet, okay. you have to have a telescope for. Okay. Yeah. But the stars, constellations. But the stars, yeah. Yeah. For instance, the Sword of Orion, you look at the Sword of Orion, has a so-called great nebula in it, and uh, it's a beautiful binocular object. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are you, wait, wait, tell, tell us why you said so-called. Did I say so-called? Yeah. <laughs> I was just wondering <laughs> if there there was uh, some controversy over the nebula and Orion. <laughs> No, um, okay. no, I'm not. I'm not trying to say it's, it's controversial. It, okay, it, it goes by a number of names. That's why I. I oh, I'm got it. it. Right. Okay. Yeah. Any, in any case, though, it's, it's a it's a beautiful region to explore uh, yeah. with with binoculars, and you look you look up a little bit higher, and you see the belt of Orion, and um, there's some showpiece stars in that in that region. There mm-hmm. there are quite a number of them. They're fairly bright, in some cases, fairly colorful. And um, one thing so that, that, nice that you, yeah, one thing you guys taught me, I think it was Darren, whenever I would mention to you the name of a star, you'd say, well, that's a binary star, which means that there's two stars there and it looks like one from our vantage point on earth, right? But Correct. there are really yeah. two. And that's the case with <laughs> Sirius. So Sirius is the brightest star um, visible from earth. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, except the sun, of course. Yeah, it is. But it's, it's a binary system. The, yeah, it's not only the the brightest, but it's the closest nighttime star you see naked eye at our latitude. It's about eight point six light years away, which is twice the distance of Alpha Centauri. But Alpha Centauri never gets above our horizon. Okay. And yes, it's a double star, mm-hmm. but it's a it's a very different one because its companion, which is very faint and ten thousand times dimmer, is a white dwarf. And um, it, you can actually see from one decade to the next, the white dwarf gets slightly closer or slightly further from Sirius with high magnification in a good telescope. You will not see 
the companion with binoculars. Okay. And most stars, when we talk about doubles, right. are telescope doubles. So you would need more than the 7 or 10 power but would that you binoculars be, give you. Right. But would you be able to see that Sirius is a double star with a low-budget telescope, or would you need something very high-powered? Um, generally, many doubles that we would mention, you can see it with a with a low-power telescope. But in this case... Um, it actually depends on what decade we're in. About 15 years ago, you would have needed not just a high-quality 10-inch telescope, but you would have needed very steady conditions, very um, mm. uh, not just transparent, but a steady atmosphere. Okay. The reason we put the Hubble Space Telescope above the atmosphere was because of the blurring effects. But you could look with the best telescope under bad conditions and not see the, the companion. Yeah, that's but interesting. With Go ahead. You mm. can see the... the um, the faint companion, a white dwarf companion, with probably a six-inch telescope without any trouble. But 15 years ago, in its orbit, it would have been closer, and you would have needed a bigger telescope. So you can actually see the motions of some of these double stars over years or decades, just a slight difference in the position, angle, or the, the uh, separation. So, so the current, many- currently, you would not need a biggest telescope to see this. The, uh, the companion right now. The but companion 20 years series. ago, it would have been different. Okay. And how large is that low-budget telescope you mentioned earlier? How many inches? Um, you could get... Well, today, it's a different story than, say, 20 years ago. No, I mean the one that you meeting. said that you, you wrote a review for, the new Celestron t- telescope. Oh, that was a four-inch lens, um, and it is not the highest quality telescope. I would doubt you would see the companion okay. with with that telescope. Um, the the lens is not a high quality, okay, uh, color type lens. So, so d- there's Dan, some... yeah, Dan, tell yeah. us. You make telescopes. Tell us what goes into making the lens of a telescope. Briefly, <laughs> tell us briefly. <laughs> well. Um, you, you, you want to find a disc of high-quality glass. Um, Pyrex, uh, what, what we call low-expansion glass, uh, it's not going to get stressed and uh, lose its shape over time. You want it to be uh, really good and steady. Um, uh, the most choice glass is what we call the ultra-low-expansion glass, the so-called ULE, which is a type of refined quartz. Um, in any case, though, you take Whatever size um, you can you can uh, find on the market, there's uh, an outfit in in Massachusetts which does a really good job of this, and uh, you have to have now grinding and polishing equipment as well. But you get a um, chunk of glass or a sheet of glass. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a disc. A disc of it's, glass. It's either six inch diameter, eight inch, ten inch, oh, okay. twelve and a half. Inch. So you buy the yeah, round piece. Get, you buy the round piece, okay. right? Now, presumably you're going to have a tool. The tool can be you plate glass or it can be ceramic. And uh, you're going to have to understand that you're going to have to rub the two discs together using uh, a rough grinding grit. We uh, Usually we use um, a trade name is carborundum. It's silicon carbide. It's very, very hard. It's a very hard substance. I believe it's the hardest after a diamond. In any case, though, um, you grind the two together, and it takes many hours, and you have to use a particular technique in, in, in developing the curve. 
you need a concave curve for a for a um, a telescope mirror, which is the kind we usually make. We're not we're not into making lenses. We're into making mirrors, the so-called Newtonian style. It was invented by uh, Isaac Newton many centuries ago. This this particular design. In any case, you then have to uh, get it through. Not after you've broke ground it, it has a very rough surface. So you have to go through finer and finer grades of the silicon carbide until you reach a point where you can use um, micrograph, which is aluminum oxide, another very hard uh, substance. But it's down into uh, 15 micron, 9 micron size, even go down even to 3 micron. This is even finer than powdered sugar. And uh, and you, you're rubbing the two discs together, and now it becomes polishable. Um, and you want to uh, use a, a, gla a glass or a ceramic substrate for what we call uh, refined pine tar pitch. Okay. I think uh, that we're getting no, a little no, too... No, wait a second. I think we're going okay. to jump in here. I think we're getting a little too detailed because I think we're going to lose some people here. Uh, I don't <laughs> I don't suspect anybody's going to be making a telescope on lockdown. I just kind of wanted you to give us the basics so that we can understand how yeah. telescopes work. And Darren, well, exactly. have you made any? I've made, um, I've done a couple with Dan many years ago where I refigured mirrors that were not made right in the first place, which mm. is very common. Oh. And so that's one of Dan's abilities is to take a mirror that might be, say, um, it's only accurate to half, to a millionth of an inch. And we make it accurate to half of a millionth of an inch oh my on the surface. And that's something yeah. that, that, that we didn't cover in the beginning how you two know each other. Back in Actually, uh, the film when I used to yeah. teach at College of the Page back 30 years ago, and um, uh, we had a class. Uh, I, I guess that there wasn't enough room at the college itself, so we held it at uh, Hinsdale Central High School, uh, the, the COD class. Mm -hmm. And Darren, of course, doesn't live very far from there. Now he teaches there, and uh, uh, he happened to be in my class. And um, we met that way. And what year was that? About 30 years was ago, wasn't it? Fall of 89. Fall okay. Of but yeah, we, we met a couple months later. If we hadn't have met then, we still would have only met a couple months later because I started working at the Cernan Center at, in January of 90. And he worked there already a couple of years. He so there. We, met, we met at one place, but we would have definitely met again and even if we hadn't have met at Cernan, we would have met at future events called AstroFest, which is we, we had been going to that star party for a few years already. We would have right. crossed paths in many different scenarios. Yeah. So, um, But basically, yeah, it was um, the fall of 89 when I took his class, and then we continued to get to know each other at the Cernan Center, where we both worked as show operators. Mm -hmm. And then I met Dan when I was walking out of the Adler Planetarium, which I, I hope we get to talk about here, um, which is the big, I think it's the oldest planetarium in the country. Is that true? In the Western Hemisphere, in fact. In the Western Hemisphere. Okay, it's in located in downtown Chicago, out on the lake. It is probably my favorite spot in all of Chicago. I love it. It's so beautiful. It's such, it, the vibe there is, uh, it, it's out of this world. No, 
it is just one of my favorite places because of how beautiful it is. And you can see the whole Chicago skyline from there and you're on the lake, but you're still downtown. So I was walking out of the planetarium and Dan had his telescope set up and Dan, we were looking, so this was in June of 2016, and we were looking at Saturn, I think. Do you remember? We were looking at Saturn, but I thought it was 2017, but I I, I could be wrong. You're right. It was 2017. Okay. Yep. Because I'm remembering where where Saturn was. I thought you would. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you know the constellation it was in, it was yeah, right. Right, and also... Another thing I want to get to, that was the year of the total solar eclipse that crossed the continental United States. And that's another thing that we talked about that night. So you showed, I was with a couple other people and you showed us Saturn in your telescope, which I I had read somewhere, Darren, it might have been in your bio or on the camp's website about how seeing the planet Saturn through a telescope can change a person's life. Yeah. It is... Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it, when I show it every summer, I, I run an astronomy program in Michigan every summer at Camp Eberhardt, and I have my large telescope, 18-inch telescope, and we have a fleet of other smaller telescopes. And the kids come out. I, I'm on a lake on a peninsula. It's perfect setting. They come out, and the first thing they see in the last few years is Saturn. I've got the telescope trained on it, Mm-hmm. Because as they come, that's pretty much all they can see because it's still not dark out yet fully. Mm-hmm. So I have to point it at the non-deep sky objects, no galaxies or anything like that yet. It's not dark enough. Okay. So I put it on the one object that is going to absolutely uh, mesmerize them from the from the beginning. And that is to see the rings of Saturn uh, through the telescope is something that... Uh, people are used to seeing Saturn on a TV screen, a book or whatever, a, a computer monitor, but not in an eyepiece where they're actually seeing the real thing. Right. And they tend to think that it's fake. Yep. They they think it's a sticker that I'm trying to con them. <laughs> because that, that's, that's, that's more than one. <laughs> yeah. And then Dan, they, I they think. can't constantly be real. And, and yet it is. I, I hit the telescope, right. tap the telescope, the mid shakes, and they see that it is the real deal. Mm-hmm. And, then, and that is the initial impression they get when they see Saturn because they just never, ever seen the light from the planet yeah. hit their eye before. And they see that clear view image that they've never seen before. And the moons. Dan, I think we, you showed me the moons of Saturn. Is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? Right. So, so two moons that we could see that night, um, the moon Titan, and mm-hmm. I believe, believe also um, uh, the Oni uh, were both visible oh. that night. And then we talked about the upcoming eclipse because that that night I met you was in June and the eclipse was in August and you guys weren't together for totality, right? I was in South Carolina, which I've talked about a lot of times on this podcast and the episode with uh, Rick Levine and then I was on Richard C. Hoagland show talking about it. But where were you guys during the total solar eclipse in 2017? Well, we we originally planned on being out west in in Nebraska, but that's just Plan A. But you have to be weather aware, yeah. and and you have to go with the best odds uh, in the up, upcoming days as you see the weather charts. And we changed our plans, which was probably good because there was more moisture in the air out in Nebraska, and some people 
had clouds out there. So mm-hmm. we ended up going south and a little east, and we ended up in different locations. I ended up being in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, okay. and it was perfect. And it was the center line. It was the, the, the best location as far as seeing the most number of seconds of totality. And it was a gathering. I didn't know where we were going to end up when we left, when I left. But that's where I ended up being. And it was perfect. So you and left Dan in your car, in Darren, you left in your car with your telescope. Yeah, I, I brought um, a 12 and a half inch telescope. Um, well, why would you bring such a big telescope? Well, um, most people there, this was a big gathering, and you could tell that many people were, some of them were somewhat astronomy savvy, but most were not. Most right. people had small telescopes. Mm-hmm. But um, I had a powerful telescope with a 12 and a half inch mirror because I wanted to look at totality with at the corona, with the big, powerful, yeah. high light gathering power telescope. Because um, while you don't look at it uh, without you know filters with, during the partial phases, the corona would be that much more amazing to see right. through the eyepiece of a bigger telescope. Mm-hmm. And it really paid off. I was absolutely amazed at what I saw and I recorded my reaction and, and it was just absolutely unbelievable. And in the minutes before totality, I was showing people Venus through the telescope because oh, they, claimed, wow. they became clearly visible. There it is. I pointed, people saw Venus. I projected an image onto a poster board of the, of the, uh, phases mm-hmm. going right before totality. You know, so I think I have a pi- yeah, I think I have a picture of you and I put all of the episodes of Speaking of Jung now on my YouTube channel, which is Jungian Laura, and I have a lot of photos of both of you with your telescopes and photos of things that we're going to we're talking about on this episode and they will be part of the YouTube slideshow that will be with this episode. So I think I have a photo of you there, Darren. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I had a picture uh, put on Facebook of me holding up uh, just a piece of cardboard, really, right. and it showed the uh, the partial phase of the eclipse that everyone can see. That's really the best way to do solar observing with the group around is to aim a telescope at the sun, make sure no one gets near the eyepiece because it's very dangerous. Okay. With that concentrated light, but then focusing it on. Um, a flat surface, preferably a white poster board, mm-hmm. and everybody can see uh, what what the sun looks like. And this will even show sunspot detail pretty nicely wow. if there are some. Well, then what do and, you um, use to protect your eyes? I have, um, currently I use a dedicated solar telescope called a PST, which is a small little 40 millimeter refractor with a built-in hydrogen alpha filter that um, lets you see a different layer of the sun. When you look at the sun, you see a visible layer called the photosphere. Mm -hmm. But this shows you a layer above the photosphere called the chromosphere, just above that layer. And it's red, and you can see prominences. Those are flames shooting off the sun or flares or other type of details that you don't normally see with just a white light filter. Um, in addition to that, I also do have white light solar filters to put okay. over regular telescopes, well, like a, an eight-inch telescope you can put right over it, and instantly it's a solar telescope. Okay. So um, with that. mylar, with a mylar-coated filter, you can clearly see the sun safely and Ooh. do group viewing, but you have to make sure it's well secured without is it going to blow off or anything. 
Right. Very important to protect your eyes. So we're all going to have another chance here in the United States and in North America to see another total solar eclipse on April 8th. 2024. And I will be with both of you. I'm inviting myself wherever you'll be. I'll be. Um, where Texas. will that go through the United States? It starts down in um, Texas, just, uh, just east of uh, Big Bend National Park. Where are we going to be? Um, well, given that April 8th is the middle of tornado season, um, we're going to have to very, very carefully study the weather charts and consult with my good friend Tom Skilling as to where it's best to be. Right. Okay. Um, because there's, there's going to be some cloud cover for almost for sure that day. Yeah, April showers. So it's going to depend oh, yeah. on the weather. Yeah. And there, weather if the weather yeah. is clear, this is important, if the weather is clear, the closest is Indianapolis, which is only about four hours from here. Oh, that's close, yeah. So, yeah, it, it is, is exceptionally close. It's closer than any other part of totality of the other eclipse. And um, interestingly enough, the uh, path crosses into Carbondale also, where the the 17 eclipse happened. Wow. So okay. Carbondale is the unique location where they get two total solar eclipses in just seven years. And Carbondale is in it's, Illinois, is in southern Illinois, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so there is a website. Let me just get this in here. There's a website called greatamericaneclipse.com. And if you go to the page called Future, it will show all the paths of the upcoming total solar eclipses. Right, yeah. I just want to point yeah. out that I saw the uh, 27 eclipse, 17 eclipse mm -hmm. uh, at Lebanon, Tennessee. Um, You're in Tennessee, about okay. Three miles, miles east of Nashville. Um, very close to the center line there. Now, it just happened to be on the recommendation of my younger brother, who was part of the entourage following me. There were, there were, my brother was following me, and uh, a group from uh, Wisconsin, including um, uh, a, a nurse from uh, from Murray Children's Hospital, were, uh, were following me also. Uh, but in case, though, my brother has a pilot's license. He recommended the airfield by uh, Lebanon, because he could get a hold of the people there and tell them, okay, we're going to bring our equipment there, and is it okay to set up? And they said, sure. And, and, and by golly, here, here those young people from the Civil Air Patrol came down, and they got to watch, too. And uh, it, was, it was a wonderful experience for them. Um, and we did have a very clear sky, completely unobstructed, and by gosh, over the next hour, we saw 70 airplanes take off who had been there just because it was near the center line of the eclipse. These mm -hmm. people had flown in from everywhere to get to that spot. And sure enough, we're looking at all these wonderful airplanes take off. One of them even wagged his wings as victory, <laughs> we thought. It was great um, to see it from there. Now, I had uh, uh, my usual 10-inch scope that I usually carry around for the uh, public observing. And um, this nurse um, uh, who uh, came along with, she, um, she had been recently widowed, and I inherited his telescope, which was another tenant, and I had both those scopes along. My brother had his, his own scope along, an 8-inch, uh, very similar to it, and uh, we had great views of this, of this eclipse. 
It was really phenomenal to watch. That's great. I'm uh, so glad you guys got to do that. So another yeah. thing that we can see, and I want to get back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this episode, is what can we do from home, right? So, because I, I don't want to forget to mention these two things, um, and I know about them because of you both. Um, one is how to spot the space station, which it, it is pretty cool to see. And even from in the city, I can see it. And then something I haven't seen yet is this Starlink chain of satellites. So I know that there are a lot of websites out there about how to spot the space station, but I was wondering if one of you would tell us briefly what the easiest way to do that is. Yes. Um, um, Heavens Above is one that I use for the Starlink satellites. And um, also, if I don't check, I might have friends who will tell me that it's going to happen. But HeavensAbove.com. Uh, yeah, tell, and, so tell us what what are the Starlink satellites and what does it look like? Okay, yeah. um, the uh, uh, Elon Musk is sending up uh, droves of, of these satellites, sending off several dozen per launch, uh, like every se several months. And they're basically for the Internet. They're going to provide free or not free, but Internet all over the world. Um, with these networks of satellites that will be covering the Earth, tens of thousands of them ultimately, which is not good for astronomy. Um, but that's not happening quite yet. Um, but so, how many are up there? How many are up there right now? Would you say? I, I don't know exactly, but it's many dozens, I think. And they're but not they're many. Lit it's up, all over right? Yeah, it's all over three hundred. Oh, of them. is that yeah. right? And, and they're bright. You can. They look like stars. Yeah. Like yeah, they they're shining like because of the light of the sun. When when yeah. okay. they, when you see a satellite, you see it simply because it's reflecting the light of the sun, mm -hmm. and you can very often see them go dark as they traverse the sky. That's simply because they're going into the Earth's shadow, or they're watching sunset from their perspective. And when uh, when these are launched in the early days, they're really close to each other. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw uh, a set of them go by that had just been launched. And we saw like 20 of them all at once, just in a small area of the sky. And it was a really, really bizarre sight. And even astronomy types, people who have seen satellites thousands of times, were like, wow, that was amazing. Um, but over days and weeks, they separate more and more and more. And they, they get higher up and they'll become a little dimmer. Um, and then you'll see maybe one pass every 30 seconds, but in the same part of the sky. Mm -hmm. And rather than 10 every, you know, a few seconds, you'd see one every, every, um, every 30 seconds or so. And you'd see that for like 20 minutes, just a train of them going on and on now, and on. Is over this the exact every thing. night? No, um, it might, it will become every night. I'm afraid. Oh my goodness. Um, that's bad because, telescope observatories that are imaging the night sky mm -hmm. will have their images ruined by streaks of light constantly going oh. through. And this is permanent. See, they didn't think this through. Yeah. Elon Musk didn't care about astronomers when, or think this through when they were putting these up there. And it's going to be a problem for all people who do imaging, who want to take pictures of the night sky through their backyard telescopes or the observatory telescopes that cost hundreds of millions of dollars. 
as they do research, they're going to have these streaks of light going through their images. And it's going to be a problem that's going to have to be uh, dealt with at some, some point. Um, but so is right there a, now, that's, it's not a big problem, but it's going to become it's one. It's going to become one as more satellites are put up into orbit. But is there the the chain that passes by that's visible, is there a regular schedule to that or does it vary like the space station? It varies. It's um, not a pattern like you can say every three days it's going to happen. It's not like that. Um, go to, as far as I know, heavensabove.com. And also the Sky Safari Pro has satellites in its database. And you can see them on there after they've been launched. They update this, the web, the, the app with this okay. data. Okay. So um, but for the average uh, person... Uh, let's go to uh, heavensabove.com. That's the go-to site for right. looking up satellites. Okay, and Dan, you were saying something? Yeah, the schedule for launching them can be interrupted by the fact that the weather is too bad for launching at, at, at Cape Kennedy. And so uh, we can't tell exactly when they're going to be in, until they actually launch them, and that, that may be delayed from the original uh, uh, launch date mm-hmm. because of weather problems or mechanical problems that they detect on the spacecraft. Right. And so they're, do you know when they're going to be finished launching all of them? Boy, that's going to be many months mm-hmm. from now. Many months. Okay. And then as no, far I as... I think we're looking at years because I've heard tens of thousands of these are going up. And they're so all going to be connected to each other to provide internet access to the world. They're not right. connected that's to each other more than they are connected to transmitters on the Earth, I presume. Okay. They'll be able to... because. The way it works is if there's enough satellites blanketing the Earth in a network, uh, it, it should provide any place on Earth uh, Internet ability because they keep rising. And uh, at any location, you'll be able to see a couple of these things at any time. And your device can communicate with it as long as it's above the horizon. So with this many causing this, creating this network, you can be in the middle of an ocean and be able to get a high quality internet connection I in see. theory. Okay. Now, as far as the it's space. Kind of like a, a, an extended uh, GPS. Extended um, GPS. GPS operates much the same way. Mm-hmm. It's a series of satellites, but you don't need anywhere near as many GPSs to do to do the work that, that Elon Musk wants to do. You, you have to have a lot more satellites to do what he wants to do with okay. uh, connecting with Wi-Fi. Yeah. And so as far as seeing the space station, which is another thing that I highly recommend, um, Dan, you showed me Saturn and its moons uh, in a telescope. And then Darren, you and I were Facebook messaging and you told me that I was going to be able to see the space station from my window since you know where I live and where my windows face. And I saw it and it was pretty amazing. It's not like you can see I mean, I, I just was using the naked eye. I, I wasn't using anything else, and I saw it. So would you tell us how we can find out when it's going to be passing by? And it would be helpful if people knew what direction their houses faced, all the different windows. Yeah. Okay, what I use is Sky Safari Pro. Um I, I don't know if the free version has the information for the International Space Station or not, but it'll tell me by running the clock forward, I can see if it's going to appear on any any night coming up. 
Um, I, you know, it's going to be clear tonight and I didn't check tonight. It would have probably been a good idea, but, um, so I'll see, Hey, it's going to be coming up in the Southeast and move this direction. And, and it's going to be exactly, uh, 80 degrees or whatever above the horizon. And it'll be bright, maybe br- about as bright as Sirius or brighter even. Is maybe it always at brightness. that brightness? No, it's, if it's going to be clearly in the sunlight without the hindrance of the earth and it's nearly overhead mm-hmm. and dark. Yeah. Okay. Pretty much. It's going to be Jupiter type brightness. If it's only going to be 12 degrees above the horizon, it'll mm-hmm. be more like a bright uh, brightness, but um, it's precision um, can be quite high with these. And I've actually seen a satellite or the pro- projection of where it's going to be. And I said, Oh, it's going to pass near this star. And then I would actually, put my scope on that star and then mm-hmm. watch the satellite go through it. And I've seen that happen. And I've even been able to follow it many times with my telescope. And you can see the shape of the satellite with its solar panels and all that pretty easily by following the telescope, following it with the telescope. Following it with so the it's telescope. not just, a, yeah, it's not just a point of light through a telescope that you can actually see fine details if you can track it accurately enough. And then but it, to the eye, you will never see more than just a dot. A dot. And then it disappears. Tell us why it you'll be watching it and it's moving and then it'll just disappear. Yeah, um, it's true with any satellite. Um, when it goes into the Earth's shadow, it just uh, it, it appears to go away. And the reason you see it is that the sun is shining on it. It doesn't have a light source aiming okay. down. It's simply reflecting the light of the sun. So when it goes into the Earth's shadow, and this isn't an instant thing because of our atmosphere, it might hit a sunset-type atmosphere and then maybe get slightly reddish, and then uh, as it goes into the shadow, it'll pretty much go away fairly quickly. But they tend to dissipate over several seconds because it goes through a thick atmosphere for a few moments, mm-hmm. and then disappears completely into the Earth's shadow, and then it's completely invisible. Mm-hmm. And this is visible from pretty much everywhere on the in the world, right? I mean, you just have to know when it will be visible in your area. And there are probably websites out there. I'm sure there's a page on NASA's website that will tell you that. You don't have to have Sky Safari, but that is the the app that Darren uses and now I use. Or Heavens Above is a website you can go to. And oftentimes, if I have Facebook friends, I will put it out if I just happen to notice it's yeah. going to be clear tonight and I check it. I see, oh, it's going to be up tonight. And I'll actually put out an announcement on Facebook. And then a lot of people go out and see it because I did that. Right. And so um, you can, if you're connected to somebody like me or Dan, you can find these things out in advance because we check these things a lot. Right. Um, but if you aren't, then you can go to heavensabove.com is the primary uh, source that I know of that will show you. Uh, you put in your location or it will know your location. And then um, it shows the the details as to where it will come up, where it will be at its highest point and how, how, how many degrees it will be. And then uh, when it will be low again. So mm-hmm. uh, heavens above is what I would recommend. Okay. And, and speaking of disappearing, I would like to ask both of you about Betelgeuse or as it's commonly called Betelgeuse which is the star, the very bright star that forms the upper, is it right or left? Is it, as you're looking at it, it's the left shoulder of the constellation Orion. 
Yeah. Right. And so that star has is very bright and it's been dimming. Now it's no longer dimming. I follow a Twitter account called Beetlebot, which it's it's, it's kind of it's kind of difficult to understand. It's a chart, um, but it's been brightening again. Darren, you mentioned that it was. Um, it, it's a big deal. So would you tell us about that? Yeah, um, a, a fair uh, number of stars up in the sky are not a constant brightness, and this would even include Polaris, the North Star. But the, the variation in brightness is minuscule, and you won't see it with the naked eye uh, night to night or mm-hmm. year after year even. It's subtle. Uh, you would need a sensitive instrument to see these changes in most cases. And Betelgeuse is one of those. It's a red supergiant-type star about four or 500 light years away. So we see light from, you know, say if it's 500 light years away, it's 500 years old light. And it's a very large star. It's, it's so large that if you put it in the place of our sun, the Earth would be inside of it. And even Mars would be inside of it. That's a, a very large red supergiant. So uh, these type of stars also slightly vary in brightness because they get bigger and smaller. They're not the same constant size. And the variation in Betelgeuse is very slight in uh, periods of uh, like months or years, it can change very slightly. However, in the last several months, people were noticing it was getting quite dim. Yeah. And by 10 or 20%, not dramatic, not like half the brightness, but no, maybe but 20 it was noticeable. It was really noticeable to me. And yeah, it, it was noticeable. Um, but it, it was, so that made it a fairly rare event to see it do that. And people were speculating, oh, it's about to explode. Yeah. Um, but, and it will, it will go and explode as a supernova any 10,000 years now. And, but it's not, not likely to happen in our lifetime. It's, it's possible, but it's very unlikely. Um, but it would be amazing if it did. And uh, maybe this was a precursor. That yeah. it was going to I mean, I kind of wanted to. I want to see it. It would be about, imagine taking the brightness of a full moon and condensing it down to the brightness of a, or the, the size of a point of light, a star. That's what would it be. That's what it would be. It would be as bright as a full moon and be an amazing event. It would be um, absolutely amazing in astrophysics and the neutrino detectors and gravity wave detectors would go nuts. Wait, so it would be as, would as bright as a full moon, but not the size of a full moon, right? Correct. It would be the size of a pinpoint, but as bright as a full moon, about, yes. But just a pinpoint? That's no fun. Right. Yeah, because it's a star that, it's, even though it's as large as the orbit of Mars, um, even our telescopes that we talked about resolve it only as still just a pinpoint. It's not resolvable as a disk. It's too small to see with anything except the Hubble Space Telescope, really, uh, to see, um, only it can see a slight disk. So if it explodes a few times bigger than that, it's still a pinpoint. Okay. And it would take several months before we might start to see a shape right. like a, a nebula start to emerge. Well, wait a it second. Would, since, since it's so far away, since it's so many light years away, could is it possible that it already could have supernovaed and we just don't know it yet? Correct. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, 
And, and we often, I often get the question, you know, we hear about many of these stars that they've probably blown up by now. Well, that's really not true. Most stars live billions of years or at least hundreds of millions of years. And their light only takes decades or centuries to get here. So, uh, and most stars don't blow up. Only a less than 1%, maybe maybe way less than 1% of the stars actually blow up. So Betelgeuse yeah. is one of the prime candidates for being able to say that. Maybe it did blow up and we haven't seen its light get here yet, but the odds of even that are still pretty low. And and it's it's a prime candidate because of its age? Because of its mass. It's about um, 12 or 13 or so times the mass of the sun. Okay. It needs to be about 11 times the mass of the sun to blow up. And the vast majority of stars are not that massive, and they okay. will not blow up. Well, speaking of blowing up, what happened to Comet Atlas? I mean, I was all excited about – well, I wasn't excited. I was sort of dreading it because the appearance of a comet is what the Tibetans call an evil omen. And I really thought it was going to coincide with this coronavirus crisis because, as Clyde Lewis said, every plague needs a comet. So – Comet Atlas was one of the talking points that we we had come up with a couple months ago when we decided to do this episode. But now it's a non-story. What happened? It's a comet. Comets are very, very um, uh, uh, dissolvable uh, uh, features. They're they're not uh, they're not solid-like planets or asteroids. They're ice, um, they're, right? They're, they're very fragile. Yeah, they're mostly ice. Um, they they have. Um, um, uh, uh, gases. Um, they're, they're always lightweight and they're very fragile and, and they get near sunlight and they can break apart. Well, were you surprised that, that Comet Atlas broke apart? Not especially because it, it resembles, uh, uh, the, it's orbit resembles that of a comet that came by in 1844. Okay. Uh, which is a bright one. Because it's on the same orbit, it suggests that it's already a break-off of that comet. It's a so break-off of the... Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's a break-off of the 1844 comet? Yeah. Yes, it could be. It could um, be, okay. Yeah, it could be. Um, and, uh, well, given the fact that the orbital period is well over 6,000 years, well, the separation would become a, a century by the time it, re it reaches, uh, reaches us right now. Uh, it's not unusual for that to happen. Okay. Um, but, uh, it, it, they're fragile. They break up. Um, and uh, it's, it's too bad. But there, <laughs> you know, that, but there is another one. There's a comet swan. There's also a comet uh, pan stars around. Swan so, might become a fairly conspicuous uh, object fairly soon. When will we know about comet swan if it's going to be visible? I think... Uh, yeah. Before the end of this month, I think uh, we'll, yeah, we'll already. Um, Darren? It's going to go through, yeah, um, the 8th to the 14th, it's going to go through, I believe, Triangulum and then Perseus in mid-month and then to Auriga. But it will be near the sun, uh, the morning twilight. So it may be somewhat bright, maybe naked eye but be somewhat close to the sun, which is typical of brighter comets. They tend to be very bright when they're near the sun. And okay, so we uh, that won't may... be able to see it then. Well, I'm not it saying doesn't... that it may okay. be visible, but right now it's 
southerly. You have to be kind of way south on the okay. globe to see it, but it's moving so that it will be visible from the northern hemisphere in the next week or two. Well, some of our and listeners then, are in the southern hemisphere, so I don't want to forget about them. Um, so when is it possible that, that they might be able to see it? it? What would it look like in the southern hemisphere? It, it may be visible now, but it would probably require a telescope or at okay. least a good pair of binoculars and the, some ability to know the night sky. Right. Um, with comets, they're the only objects that we just don't know because of how, how uh, fragile they can be, like Dan said. Whereas asteroids and planets, we know exactly where they're going to be. They follow Newtonian physics perfectly. Mm -hmm. But comets have these jets. You know, when they evaporate, they 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 go off in slightly different directions and predict it, and then they tend to not sublimate as much as we thought they would, and their their cloud, so to speak, is very dim when we might have thought it was going to be bright. And so we just don't know, especially with ones that have never been seen before what they're going to do. And that's mm -hmm. the case with Atlas and now Swan, but it oh. is worth the, worth watching Swan on uh, a website, like maybe spaceweather.com. Okay. They sometimes tell if there's a naked eye comet on space weather. And um, okay, that so would tell you, or just a Google search could probably give you a good clue as to where to look. Okay. We'll keep our eye on, on uh, we'll be on the lookout for comet Swan. And then what about asteroids? There was a close flyby not too long ago, wasn't there? Yes, uh, yes, I tried to see it, but my telescope, in using Sky Safari Pro, uh -huh. aimed my telescope at it, and it hit a nearby house. So it was too low whoa, to whoa. see. Oh, your telescope hit the nearby house. I mean, it, it, it ended up aiming at a house because it, it was low above the horizon Got in it. the south. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So have you guys the, um, seen... Hang on. Have you seen an asteroid through the telescope, and what does it look like? How does it look different from other objects? Yeah, well, it looks many like, like It just does, but it moves. You can see it move against background stars. It just looks like a uh, star, but it moves. But it's very slow. It's a very slow motion against the background stars. Yes, that's that's exactly what it, I in saw. In general, that's number years ago. Darren, and, uh, I, 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 I hang on, hang on, one at a time. Darren, go ahead. Yes, I have seen a disc on Vesta before. Oh, um, it was near a bright star of equal brightness, and the star was a a tiny point, an airy disc, and Vesta was maybe fifty percent bigger. So I was actually able to resolve the disc, but that takes uh, a lot of things coming together to be able to see that. Okay, hang on. And, so you're saying um, you saw Vesta, which is an asteroid near and dear to my heart because I was born with the Sun-Vesta conjunction and very close. And you, so you, when you saw Vesta in the telescope, it did not appear like a star. It appeared like a disk. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, with high magnification, like mm -hmm. 400 power Okay, and steady air, which is not a guarantee, yeah. Uh, I was able to tell that it looked bigger than the star. So I was resolving the disk. And it's also worth noting that okay. it is possible to see asteroids move in front of stars. And I have seen that one, oh. that event happening before. Yeah. If you follow people on the internet who are occultation chasers, as you'd call it, they look for okay. events where asteroids are predicted right. to move in front of stars. Right. You can actually see a star wink out for several seconds as the asteroid 
moves in front of it, and then the star brightens up again. And I have seen that that event happen once. And so that was kind of cool. I never saw the asteroid, but the star was mm-hmm. many times brighter. And so I saw a star wink out for several seconds. Is and that the- can give information as far as, as to how big the asteroid physically is if you have a network okay, of right. observers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is the asteroid that you were trying to see not too long ago Apophis? No, Apophis is going to be 10 years from now. Oh, and it will be a big event. Okay, got it. Right. Yeah. And it will be, you said it's about the size of a football stadium, that it won't hit the Earth. Um, right. We know yeah, for it sure. It will be Friday, Friday the 13th of April 13th of 2029. It will be the size of a football stadium, about 400 meters, and it will dip below the orbits of our geosynchronous satellites and uh, miss the Earth by 20,000 miles. And it will be visible as a somewhat bright star-like object from people in Europe moving across the sky. Okay, but it'll just look like a bright star. Not a bright star. It will be what's called third magnitude, but should be about um, two or three times dimmer than the North Star. Oh, well, that sounds pretty uneventful. Doesn't <laughs> well, it? Well, I mean, it's what, the thought that counts on that one. The thought that... Because, go ahead. Well, it's the fact that we're so close, astronomically speaking, 20,000 miles yeah. is as near miss as you ever want to deal with. Okay. Yet, if it hit the Earth, it would be catastrophic to to any region and to the globe, actually, uh, climate-wise, if it was to hit the Earth. And fortunately, we don't have to worry about it. But there is no guarantee that it won't hit the Earth within the next several hundred or thousands of years from now. Okay. What is your take on Mars, life on Mars, each of you? Well, the, okay. um, the possibility of uh, what we call panspermia, um, one, one object develops life and, uh, and then the uh, Life spreads on, on that planet, even if it's just a, for a fairly short amount of time. An asteroid strike can hit that planet mm-hmm. and not the uh, uh, the life uh, some of the life forms off of that planet and send it to another planet. Now we have a uh, a meteorite um, that was found in Antarctica. It's called ALH eighty four double o one. And uh, it was noticed it, was, it had the same chemical composition as was found by the Viking spacecraft at Mars mm-hmm. when the Viking spacecraft had landed there in, in 1976. So we had uh, we had a, a chemical signature for a Martian rock. And when it was examined closely, it was found to have these uh, so-called aromatic compounds on it and uh, also a slight magnetic field to it, too, which is kind of surprising for Mars having a a relatively weak magnetic field, but in its earliest days, it may have had a magnetic field. And the the uh, the presence of these um, aromatics plus some um, some like uh, a, apparent fossilized creatures <laughs> were on it too. Um, however, uh, it's it's been stated that they they could be a just a, a natural uh, geologic formation. Right. Um, okay. And uh, so it's it's possible that that uh, something struck Mars where it had life and sent it to the Earth, 
Um, this was this was an asteroid that was, I mean, a, a, a meteor that was found in Antarctica, mm-hmm. what are called Allen Hills. This is why it's called ALH. And um, uh, we know that the layer of ice it was in indicates it landed 13,000 years ago. And from the amount of wearing away from solar wind tells us that it was actually in space for about 16 million years. It was so in space for 16 million years. It was in space for 16 million years, okay. right. And finally came from Mars and hit the Earth then 13,000 years ago. And uh, we found it in 1984. And it has this bizarre chemistry in it. Um, and but and, but that's uh, still but that still is not proof that there was an ancient civilization on Mars. Is that is that oh, no. No, no no no? Okay. That, this is extremely primitive life. This is more primitive than we've ever seen on on, okay. on our yes, if it is life. But I that um, uh, I don't remember her name. But an astronomer a few years later. Uh, did an active search on the Martian surface um, mm-hmm. using images from the Viking orbiter spacecraft. Right. And she uh, she pinpointed a couple of uh, craters on Mars that would be, um, that indicate that an, an asteroid would have struck and, and with enough force to kick mm-hmm. um, rocks off of, off of Mars and let it to go to escape velocity. So it could roam the solar system and eventually hit the Earth. Okay. There are two craters on the, on Mars that match that 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 particular time period that appear to have the uh, enough impact force to allow that to happen. And I don't know why in the world we have not scheduled a uh, a spacecraft to land at either one of those. Right. Because it should be a very interesting spot to go to. I, if I were in charge, that would be my first yeah, priority. Yeah. And you know, this new rover has that's going to Mars has a helicopter, so maybe we'll get something out of that. But I was just wondering if either of you have ever examined photographs of Mars and seen any indication of any uh, ancient life that may have existed there. Well, I guess what I'm getting to is the so-called, to use that term, face on Mars. And if either of you give that any validity. No, no, um, it's, um, people are biologically engineered to look for faces and whenever they see anything resembling right. something like a face. Right. Yeah. We, we um, tend to, to say there, there's something, but yeah. no, the, the face on Mars image was from, I believe, 76. Then we had follow-up images in decades later and it looked nothing like a face. There's yeah. no, nothing on Mars that suggests from imagery mm-hmm. from orbiters that mm-hmm. look like anything unnatural, yeah, um, and despite then, uh, what you might see on the internet. Right. And then, of course, the conspiracy theorists say that the photographs have been doctored, altered, censored, but... Uh, you guys have telescopes. True. Okay, but you have telescopes, so you can see firsthand yourselves what's going on there. And I was just wondering if either of you have ever seen any anything that made you question the official NASA story. Because uh, no, I'm we, not we convinced. No, now we reported that we have Mars coming close to the Earth in October of this year. Okay. I believe the first approach is the night of October 7th. And uh, we will get some some good views of it. It'll be the closest approach until the year 2035, by oh, the way. Oh, wow. Okay, great. So we've got a, uh, we're at the nice, uh, good time of the year to be viewing planets uh, because the year is usually a lot steadier at that time of year than it is at any other time of year. 
So we're planning on uh, hopefully the virus will let us do uh, uh, outreach again and uh, be able to show off the red planet. Um, and uh, we can show people the polar ice caps, the, the polar hoods, even the uh, so-called orographic lift clouds. Um, Mars just happens to have the largest mountain in the solar system. It's two and a half times higher than Mount Everest. Mars has it's, the largest mountain in the solar system? Right, it does, yes. And the largest yeah. canyon, too. Um, and the largest canyon. It's five times deeper than the Grand Canyon. and can stretch all the way from New York to L.A. And you see this in your telescope. You can see the, those features there. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, I just was on, on NASA's Instagram page this morning, and they come up with something called What's in the Sky each month. And yeah. I think, Darren, you wanted to mention this. Uh, what's visible in the evening sky right now is our Venus, Sirius, uh, Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse, the, the Milky Way, part of the Milky Way. That's in the evening. And then in the morning, you can see the moon, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Altair, Formal Hut, Antares, and the center of the Milky Way. Um, well, that's a one at a time here. Uh, um, I'm sorry. I just, I had made a list. Go ahead. <laughs> generally, generally you're right, but some of those not so much. Um, uh, the, the main thing to see these days in the evening is Venus. Mm -hmm. And uh, the later you look into the calendar year, I think Sirius is pretty much going near the sun. I haven't really looked recently. Yeah, it disappears in May. Yeah, so right, it disappears in May and, and reappears Venus, in August. Yeah, Venus is well placed. It's it's a prominent beacon in the in the western sky, and it will not twinkle. Um, and then the other planets in in oh, in the Milky Way, by the way. Forget Milky Way if you're anywhere within 50 or 60 miles of Chicagoland. <laughs> right. The sky glow completely wipes out Milky Way. Yeah. Um, if you're in um, a rural location mm -hmm. uh, in a, you know, area away from towns, then you can see Milky Way if the moon is not up or okay. if it's not real bright. Um, but in the even in the morning sky, it's a lot more interesting because you have three planets, prominent naked eye planets. You have Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars. And um, they're kind of doing a dance. Mars moved by the two planets in the last several weeks. Now, when you say and morning, what time are you talking about? 4 or 5 a.m. Okay, basically. so right before sunrise. It's up in the south, southeast. And the, the key here is to look to make sure that the stars or the objects are not twinkling. The planets, as a general rule, will have a steady light whereas stars will tend to twinkle a little bit due to the atmosphere and the fact that they're tiny pinpoints, even through a telescope. And so Jupiter and Saturn, especially Jupiter, would be very prominent mm -hmm. in, the, in the southeastern sky, and Saturn will be to its left, and then quite a bit to the left of Saturn is Mars, and it's going to become increasingly bright over the next several months through October and be brighter or about the same brightness as Jupiter is now. So Mars and is going to be really week. close. Hang on, let me just ask this. Mars, uh, Dan mentioned, is going to be very close in October of this year. Remember in 2016 when Mars was close? And I remember distinctly because I was at Joshua Tree National Park in California and Mars was gigantic. Is it going to be closer than it was in 2016, Dan? 
Uh, actually, um, I believe it is uh, not quite as close. Uh, let's see. I, I think you're confusing it. I think, um, oh, I'm trying to remember. Let's see. 20, 2018, yeah. 2016 was a close approach, yes. It was a little bit closer then than it will be this time, but only okay. only uh, by about, about 1% or so. Okay, so similar so to, to, to the way the it looked in 16. Right, yeah. Basically the same brightness, yes. I want to point out one more thing, though, about Venus, because um, on the nights of the 20th and 21st of this month, it is, it's just barely above the planet Mercury. And the following two nights, it's just below, Mer Venus is just below Mercury. So it's an opportune time to use Venus as a beacon to see Mercury, which um, is not often seen by most people. In fact, I think it was said that um, even Nicholas Copernicus never even saw Mercury once in his life. Um, but this will be an opportune time to use Venus as a, this brilliant beacon to see Mercury. Again, uh, on the nights of the 20, 20th and 21st, Venus will be slightly above it. And then the next two nights, Venus will be slightly below Mercury. And, and which part of the sky do we look in? Yeah, this is the west-northwest and around 9 o'clock. West-northwest mm -hmm. around 9 p.m. Yeah. Right. They'll be about yeah. uh, eight degrees above the horizon at that at that point. So have a nice clear horizon, but uh, Venus is easy to see. Then look for Mercury just below on the 20th and 21st. Look for Mercury just above on the 22nd and 23rd. Okay, and Dan, um, we you haven't told us about your George Lucas story. I I completely <laughs> forgot. We got to hear that. Can I interject? Yeah, for just one go second, ahead, Darren. Please? I want I want to clarify one word you said that okay. doesn't strike me right and that was the word gi gigantic when you referred to mars um hey i'm an amateur yeah i know i know i'm just going to clarify yeah go ahead um, all the planets are pinpoints to the naked eye you can never see size in any planet it's purely the brightness that we perceive the brightness and, okay the thank brightness. you okay the yeah. brightness yeah. except yeah. We except can, we the rare case Whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa, one, um, one at a time. Seeing, except the rare case of seeing uh, Venus when it's near by the Earth as a thin crescent. People with the best vision might have a chance to see a crescent shape of Venus in a twilight sky. But it, I've never been able to see that. And But there have been re reputable reports of people seeing the, sh the Venus crescent to the naked eye. But binoculars really would do it. But... Um, so I just wanted to clarify because, and I say that because there was that that big crazy yeah. hoax about Mars being the same size as the Moon, right. you know, in 2003, which was nonsense. So there is no size to the eye on a planet uh, except for brightness. That's all we perceive. That in color is all okay. we're going to perceive when we see the naked and eye. Color. Okay. So when I saw Mars and. It was a very memorable night for me because I met Robert Bouval for the first time, who I idolize. And he interrupted our conversation and said that he was just so distracted by Mars and it was right there. And it was an incredible night. But it did look, I mean, it just, the, 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 the circumference of it, you know, looked very large. And you're saying because of its, closeness to the earth it appeared brighter no, it, because of how small the disk is in the sky and the resolution limits of human vision there's no way to see 
anything other than a point to the naked eye. Okay. No, but I'm trying to understand why it looks so bright. Because it's against the blackness of space. Mm -hmm. It's not hard to be bright. And the fact that it's relatively close to the sun, it compared to the outer planets anyway, it's going to be shining brightly because it's, um, just that's just the way it is. It can be as bright as just a um, Saturn or dimmer than Saturn like now, or it can be brighter than Jupiter. It all depends on how big the disk appears in the sky. And we usually use the term arc seconds. How many arc seconds is the diameter? And the most it can ever hit is 25. And I think it'll be about 21 this October, if I'm not mistaken. 21 arc seconds, which is still... um, Still, uh, 60 arc seconds is a 60th of a degree. So it's it's still completely, um, it would be like looking at a dime about about um, 800 feet away or something like that. Got it. Okay. Thank you for clarifying mm-hmm. that. So back to the George Lucas story. And Darren, I'm <laughs> sure you've heard this several times, right? <laughs> yep. Okay, Dan, give it give give us the give us the uh abbreviated version. Okay. Um well I was uh uh instructor at Abbott Planetran's old optical shop. They don't have it anymore, unfortunately, but um uh back in the late seventies, which of course is when the original nineteen seventy seven release of, of Star Wars came out. Now a few months before the movie was released, uh there was a novel version, there was a book version. Um, and, uh, I, I finally saw the movie about three months after it, it first hit the theaters. I was very, very busy. The optical shop was at that point was, uh, very hectic. <laughs> it mm-hmm. was, I had many students and, um, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of time to go to a movie theater, but eventually I made it by the end of August of that year. And, uh, one time I came back from the shop, I can remember it very specifically, it was the night of November 1st of that year. So this was about five months after the movie came out. And uh, I had 17 students in the shop. <laughs> and I'm trying to get them all to this um, incredible degree of accuracy that we demanded of ourselves to get the students to, to get their, their telescope optic to, so they were completely optimized. We had, unsur- we had unsurpassable optics. And we had a big reputation because we'd had our optics tested both at the Kitt Peak National Observatory shop and also at the University of Arizona's optical shop. But they're the big, um, even today, these are the, uh, the standards for, uh, for, uh, getting, uh, for getting telescopes together accurately. Um, in any case, so, uh, um, I had to relax myself and I picked up the, the novel version a few nights earlier. And I thought, well, I'll go through the pictures, you know, and, and see all the nice pictures in the in the book there, um, reminding me of the movie, and I'll kind of relax myself so I could get to sleep because I was exhausted. I was fatigued, but I wasn't sleepy. And I needed somehow to relax myself, so I thought that would do it. Well, I, find, I finally decided, well, I, why don't I just start reading the novel? And I got to page 16. Now, you might remember there's a, there's a scene in the movie early on where R2 has run away, and Luke is frantically searching the horizon with a carefully clean set of macro binoculars, as it says in the book. Uh, and, he, and finally, it says, for long moments he stared, wishing all the while he had a real telescope instead of the binocs. 
Well, it hit me in less than half a second. Of course, the guy who's writing that line is 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 telegraphing his own wish for having a real telescope through the thoughts of his protagonist, which, of course, was Luke Skywalker. And I thought, how is he going to get a real telescope unless I make one for him and get it sent to him? And, and you know, this is a, a total shot in the dark. This is another thought that's coming mm-hmm. through. At the same time, um, we it was very easy to notice the uh, the increase in the attendance at the planetarium after that movie came out, and people were far more interested in seeing the, the heavens and learning about uh, astronomy as a result of it. I thought, what a shame if he really was, if, of course, this is George Lucas, uh, really wants a, a, a good scope, and he never gets one. Well... Maybe I can change that. <laughs> and uh, and I thought, well, I'm going to do this. It's going to be my own project. It's going to be absolutely no one else is going to have anything to do with this. And I'm going to try and keep the identity of this person I'm going to build a telescope for completely secret. And so I set, up, I set about the next two months uh, just designing it. I was working on another particular project at the time. Um but uh, it was a very important project. But as soon as that one got done, which was the, now January of uh, 1978, um, I then ran ran over to uh, a place where I could get one of these discs, a 10-inch disc, because I thought that what George should have is the largest telescope that one person can fairly easily handle. Now, this... this uh, this scope would have 900 times the light gathering power of the eye. It would be able to see galaxies over 300 million light years out. Wow. Very far, far away, as it says <laughs> in the opening line of the movie. So, so um, I, uh, I started uh, working on it uh, there early in January of 78. And I finally got the, the primary optics done. As it turned out on my 30th birthday, which was March 23rd, and uh, I still had to cut, of course, gather the rest of the components together, which I was doing over the next several weeks. And I'm still wondering, how in the world am I going to get it there? These people keep them, their, their hideouts, you know, hide, hideouts, you know, you don't find them. Right. You know, they, 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 they don't let themselves be known as the word where to track them down. So this story may be the poster boy for you make your own break. Um, I had originally thought that, you know, George might have all the resources to get his own scope at some point. Um, and, 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 you know, just abandon the project entirely from the very beginning. But I thought, no, I've got to do this. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, the big break came when I found out that the scene where they plug in R2 to show the rebel pilot how to get through that channel to the vulnerable, um, exhaust port. To get the proton torpedoes down in and blow up the whole um, Death Star. Well, uh, that scene was shot at UIC. Um, and UIC the, is uh, University of Illinois Chicago. Okay. And uh, down there at Circle Campus, and it just so happens to, to have uh, been done by a fellow named Tom DeFonte. Um, the software for it. And uh, he had also done some of this work for the chemistry department so they could show molecular structure in 3D and in motion, 
which of course is what this scene was all about, 3D and in motion. And um, it turns out that the chemistry department was writing a phone book. So I called them up and they gave me Professor DeFonte's direct line. And I told them that, you know, I was uh, making the scope, I, how I got the idea and what the, the scope could do. And I just uh, don't have an address. <laughs> right, <laughs> I'm all right. And, uh, uh, you know, it'd be too bad if, if George never got, never got a good scope. And so um, he said, well, you know, that really is a terrific idea. And he, he said, you need to talk to Charles. And he gives me this phone number. And a few days later, uh, I called that number and the go on the other end answered, good afternoon, Star Wars. I'm there. <laughs> How about that? And uh, I'm thinking, maybe this might work. And uh, I kind of uh, let out a groan when uh, she said that Charles was on vacation for a couple more weeks. And then after a little bit of a gap, she said, well, is there anything I can do to help? And knowing I was going to tell Charles about the secrecy I was holding it then, and nobody was guessing as mm. who this was for. Uh -huh. And this is, a, this is a big project. No one, nobody's guessing, you know. And, uh, and, and so I said, uh, do you think you keep big secret? And she's like, huh? And I, I went into a, a, a description of the scope. How I got the idea. And, um, uh, we got into a conversation of, you know, what, what the scope could do and a little bit about the movie and stuff. And I said that, um, uh, Professor DuPonte said that if I talked to Charles, I might be able to uh, ascertain what the, uh, address would be. And uh, after a little bit more conversation, she said, you know, that really is a great idea. Here's where you send it. I had it just like that. Wow. I was amazed. And seven weeks later, I got a call. Um, uh, it was, I, I uh, answered Optoscop, and I heard someone say, hello, is this Daniel Joyce? Yes. My name is Jane Bay. And I'm the executive assistant to George Lucas. And I would like to thank you for sending out this magnificent telescope for George. You have the whole office going wild here. Nobody has ever seen anything like this. Wow. It just so happens that um, the scope was first noticed uh, as it arrived by uh, the movie's producer, who was Gary Kurtz. He decided, even though George wasn't even there yet, to open up the crate. They weighed 300, 308 pounds, I think, together. Uh, I chipped it out by... Um, an outfit uh, then called Flying Tigers. And uh, she said, you should have seen the look on his face when he got those crates open because I had signs on it. One thing, how I got the idea, that quote from the book, mm -hmm. and the other one describing the fact that it's the 900 times the light gathering power of the eye mm. can see galaxies over 300 million light years out. Mm. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, they, they see all this and they, believe it or not, before George got there, they actually had that scope set up by the instructions I had inside those, those crates. They had an extra, oh, the whole thing was set up by the time you got nice. there. That was, that was, that was, that was just an electrifying moment. I'm sure. To, to the yeah. And so you I have a, a, uh, a signed photograph, an autographed photograph yeah. of Mr. Lucas with your telescope. And that will That's be part right. of the slideshow of this episode Great. on our YouTube channel. Please like and subscribe. Yeah. Um, yeah, he sent that photograph about two and a half months later with a um, 
a donation of the planetarium of three thousand dollars. And wow. uh that's awesome. Yeah. I love that. And uh, the best testimonial you'll ever see in your entire life. Great. So it, was, it was wonderful what he said about it. And uh, uh, seven years later, he invited me out to, uh, uh, as a consultant for the building of Guy Walker Ranch Observatory. And we're going to have the 35th anniversary of that that's coming October, just as Mars makes a super close approach here. <laughs> so so it's, it's going to be uh, very interesting. I'm, I'm hoping the... The crisis from the from the virus is, is over by then because um, I talked with his executive assistant. It's a new one now. Her name is Connie, and uh, about the idea of coming out then, and uh, uh, they're good about the idea. And, uh, if just if if the crisis is over with by then. So what goes on at this observatory? Would you tell us a little bit about it, and then we'll wrap yeah. up. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, together with the chief architect of Skywalker Ranch, um, for three months we designed uh, what we wanted to have in this observatory. We wanted to have it so that um, there were no uh, no no materials which would trap heat and create uh, unnecessary air currents. Uh, they even had a the, the walkway to it is pea gravel. They didn't even want uh, concrete, you know, to suck up sunlight during the day and, and have it mm. uh, during the night. Um, and um, uh, most of the structure is, uh, is metallic, which throws off the heat very, very rapidly after the sun goes down. Um, there's only a slight amount of concrete. Most of that is in the, uh, the, the pier um, that comes up from the ground. It was stuck down about six feet, so it could gain stability. And uh, come up to a point where the, when we attach the pedestal, the eyepiece of the telescope would be right at George's uh, right right at George's eyeball height when pointed at the highest point in the sky. So, so he would never have to climb anything to to see anything through through the through the scope, and um, and you know, it could get to within three degrees of the horizon. Um, so uh, it, it, everything came out perfectly with that observatory. It's just wonderful. Yeah, what goes on there so, now? So, so right now, uh, they, there's a club uh, they have there at, at the ranch. It originally had about 30 people in it. I understand now that Disney's taken over. It's, it's more like 60 or 70 people are on this thing who, are, who have been trained how to use the scope and uh, can use it at their convenience. Um, and they do have guests that come there. I understand uh, Clint Eastwood has even looked through the scope from what I've heard. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, they've, uh, uh, there's a fellow there who's in charge of the overnight security. Uh, and it said that his name is Craig. And it said that every clear night on his round, he will go open up that observatory and look, at least look at something. Oh, cool. cool. <laughs> so it does get used uh, on virtually every clear night, yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so is, is there anything that we haven't discussed that that either of you um, would like to mention now as we wrap up? Uh, well, <clears throat> yeah, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about, just for a moment, yeah, um, what I do at the... Uh, camp in yes. Michigan every yes, summer. Yes, tell us. Yeah, um, 
it's pretty unique in that it's the only place I know of where kids can be sent somewhere and then they can see views of the spiral arms of a galaxy, for example, um, because they're, uh, the place I do this is dark. And, um, and with a large telescope and me as, as the guide, I can show them, uh, you know, galaxies, nebulae with color, uh, beautiful views of the planets and, um, you know, do tours, sky tours of the, of the night sky and also let them use telescopes because we have a fleet of eight inch telescopes. And, um, I, I don't know of any other place that can really do this. Um, let's say you go to Adler and the Adler just got a, a new, uh, large telescope, very high end expensive telescope. But if you have someone look through it at the Whirlpool galaxy, for example, they will not see the spiral arms of the galaxy because of the light pollution. Whereas if they look through what we do in Michigan, they will see the galaxy in all its glory with the spiral arms and the companion galaxy and so forth. And Well, that's a really good point really you mentioned. So why would the city of Chicago, oh, I know that the Adler Planetarium is privately funded, but why would they go to the effort of having such a high-tech telescope in an area of the country that has such, I don't want to use the word bad, but uh, inclement weather? Well, it's, that's where it is. And they can afford to have a large observatory and they can still do a lot with it. Um, if you put a camera on it, you can still see these spiral arms that I mentioned, but it would be, uh, you'd be looking at a computer screen. Right. And there's, there's a lot that can be done with it. But visually, um, it's quite limited as far as the deep sky objects go. Faint galaxies will become completely unobservable uh, at all times through the eyepiece. But they can show the bright planets pretty nicely. Um, uh, but they're still limited by their location and the heat environment causes images to blur it's really not an ideal location right. um, for, for many observing setups. But what I have in Michigan or anyone really going out into a dark rural location mm-hmm. can see so much more so much with more. their telescopes yeah. than, than the, what they would see in a light polluted location like, you know, Chicago. Yeah. Dan? When I sent the, the scope to George, I did uh, have instructions with it, and also said that okay, it will see those galaxies, but not if you're near city lights. Mm-hmm. I explained, yeah, you have to be pretty far away from the lights. Fortunately, Skywalker Ranch is far enough out that uh, you can see you can see out 300 million light years. What uh, what that. town is that technically located in? It's called Macasio, California. Okay, it's about 20 miles northwest of the Golden Gate Bridge. Northwest of the Golden Gate Bridge. Okay. 20 miles north. And Darren, I'm sorry, did you finish uh, what you wanted to say about Camp Eberhardt? Or would you like to give us some more information? Um, Well, I was simply pointing out that this is fairly unique in that kids can see uh, the night sky through large telescopes and see views that they can't get anywhere else. Um, You go to Adler, 
you have the limitations I just mentioned. If you right. go to a school or an astronomy club at a school, you have smaller telescopes with parking lot lights and teachers who don't know anything near what you would really need to know to, to, to show things like this. And you have to deal with the fact that it's at night, school meets during the day. Um, so really, there's not any other equal to where, what I do in, in the mission at Camp Everhart that in the region in this region of the country where kids okay. can be other than going with their parents somewhere to like a star party which are usually held in dark sky locations and, and you so guys do is, that you got you guys go to these star parties would you tell us a little bit about what they are uh yeah um all right dan go ahead since you, you go started to florida every time. year right the winter oh. star party has been in existence i think since the mid-1980s um I was first invited to it in 1990 myself. And where is that located? And it's at it's Scout Key, uh, Spanish Harbor, Florida. It's about 35 miles from Key West. That's far um, out there. So it's way out there, and and you have the ocean and, and the Gulf of Mexico around you. That's it. There are no lights. And you guys and drive you can, your telescopes down there, right? Yeah, right, right. Uh, we have big vans, and we can do it. And uh, we, we bring the, the big scopes down there, and uh, it's well worth it. We have about five nights. I think every night was clear this year. And it was just before the virus crisis hit. There were no restrictions. And can anybody and, go? Uh, uh, you have, just have to sign up uh, uh, a few, uh, maybe a month or so in advance. Uh, with the Southern Cross Astronomical Society, they're okay, the ones who I'll put, a, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Right, but that's one of that's many star party events. Yeah, right. They're the uh, they're the outfit that does it, and uh, uh, well, unfortunately, they they got hit hard by hurricanes recently, and as a result, I can I can no longer conduct my telescope making workshop down there. Okay, uh, which was a lot of fun to do. Because it wiped out the plumbing and the electricity at the site where we designated having this workshop. It's just gone. It's just not there anymore. And uh, eventually, they want to get it built up. Now, these are scout campgrounds. Uh, Boy Scouts have the western end. The Girl Scouts have the eastern end. And um, uh, that's why it's called Scout Key, by the way. It's right by, by the way, the Key Deer Refuge. Uh, among the smallest deer in the entire world are, are live there um, at Big Pine Key, which is the next key over to the northwest of uh, the site. And they're beautiful deer to look at. Um, and uh, beautiful uh, there are deer. many. Yeah, they're okay. wonderful, wonderful. There are other wonderful sites. And, 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 and uh, you have um, uh, water sports there, too. Mm-hmm. And the third largest coral reef in the world is just offshore. And this is all in Florida, so in the Florida Keys. Right, yeah. But there are, there are many star parties throughout the country. It's not like you right. have to go to that one. Only. There's a few in Illinois and in neighboring states. So um, right. it's not like you have to have to drive many states away to get to these. Um, and these are all open um, to the public? You just have to sign up right. and then show up? They have, they have websites. You can sign up easy. Okay. They, Great. Oh, yeah. there's, is there anything else that we haven't covered? Well, uh, I do want to think about the project I was working on just before I uh, sent George his telescope. Okay. Uh, there's another, another tennis diameter uh, job, and I did it for a uh, fellow 
who I was, who both of us had worked with at, at Sternen. His name is Dan Triani. Uh, his nickname is Mr. Mars. I know him. <laughs> so don't I, I know him? I don't, I'm not sure. Because uh, if you've had any contact with the Sternen Center, you probably ran into him. But in yeah, any I, case, I think so, I met him there one night when you guys set yeah. up your telescopes. Right. So um, his scope, uh, the problem was he, he, he made a, a 10 inch F6. This is a little bit, it's the same size as George, except it's about another oh, foot and a half longer. And uh, uh, he got the optics six months later than what they said they were going to, uh, this outfit in California said they were going to deliver it in. Turned out the owner had become almost uh, deathly sick. So there was a problem with that. And also when it came, it was only good for out to eight inches, and then it had no correction, which is faulty. So uh, I uh, promised him I would correct that situation. And I got that done uh, middle of the first week in January. And just about maybe two and a half weeks later, he comes by and he's got a sketch, which he made at the IPs, uh, of Mars. And Mars at that point was about 120 million miles away. And he's showing detail as if it was at one of the close approaches, like when it's only 35 million miles away. And I, I, I says, I know, I know there's a good scope, Dan, but geez, a week. <laughs> uh, did you do this from memory of from the last time you blasted off the surface of Mars? <laughs> do you live there? <laughs> I mean, this was so good. This was okay. really detail. Uh-huh. Anyway. Um, eventually he, uh, made a sketch of Mars. This was in December of, uh, 1979 by this time. And he sent it into the coordinator of the Mars section of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. We happened to be the director of Lowell Observatory in Arizona at that, at that time. And he's looked at it. He, he, he wrote back to Dan and he said, you have found what we call the Rima Tenuous, a little scarf and the Martian North Polar right. Cap. But that, that had been uh, seen in 1888, again in 1901, 1903, and 1918. And that again until December of 79 from the corner of Wrightwood and Monitor in the northwest side of Chicago. He says, this is incredible. But anyway, uh, he was able to uh, verify it uh, using the big 24-inch scope at, uh, at Lowell. Uh, and he said he, he admitted he had looked, looked for it tw- for 20 years using even the 82-inch diameter scope at McDonald Observatory in Texas. One Martian year earlier, it had been, um, uh, the Viking 2 spacecraft had been directed to specifically look for this feature because it was a seasonal thing. So it was the right point of the Martian year, yet it did not see it. It did not pick it up, yet Dan picked it up one Martian year later. And to top that off, two months earlier, Dan is on a sketch of Jupiter. Um, and, uh, that turned up on the cover of the, uh, journal of the, of this uh, particular organization with the caption, crucial discovery of the first, um, disturbance in the Jupiter's South tropical belt or zone rather, uh, since 1944. And the great thing about that was that Voyager two had passed the planet just a few weeks earlier and did not see it. So on two occasions, within a couple of months, Dan had beat spacecraft, observing from the corner of Wrightwood and Monitor in the city of Chicago uh, with, with, a, with, a, with a custom-made scope. Um, 
And uh, eventually, Dan became the coordinator of, of the Mara section. Um, but in any case, so uh, he, he, he was so addicted to, to looking at the planet, I, I finally said, well, you know, uh, it must be because he's homesick. <laughs> That's maybe right. his home planet. Right. That's maybe his home planet. That must be it. Uh-huh. So, so he's getting the, the uh, title of Mr. Mars. Mr. Mars. So when, uh, when, when, when it comes around again uh, in, in October, um, we'll probably have him there with us on, on the public outreach night. That's for sure. Nice. And he'll decide, describe in considerable detail what's, what's all there. Okay. Great. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, is there anything else before we wrap this up? All right. One more thing. Um, um, because Dan was in that organization, um, he met up with a couple of people who, had, who were, were really into studying Mars. Uh, they were both South Floridians. And uh, I eventually made uh, optics, optics for them. And George might, might get jealous because instead of just 900 times like getting fired, oh. yeah, he thinks you have 2,400 oh. times. Yeah, right. Nice. And they weigh, they weigh 48 pounds, just the glass. Just the glass? Um, yeah, right. And uh, with them, uh, uh, I think I, I showed this, this in, it showed, it may have showed this image to you, uh, Laura, um, a side-by-side comparison. Yes. Of uh, the apparition of, uh, of of Mars back in 2003, yep. and Hubble's images are there, and and Don's images are there, and guess what? They look the same, yep. even though uh, Hubble was supposed to outresolve every every ground-based telescope. But happily, I can say we matched it, and uh, we, we we have a lot of fun with there that. There you go. And you I, are I, a treasure, Dan. I, yeah, I I mentioned. I mentioned earlier about the uh, largest uh, mountain in the solar system. Uh-huh. It happens to be a couple of those images. Yep, it's on Hubble image, and on the uh, on the um, on the uh, Don Parker image. On the Parker image, yeah. right? And those will be in the slideshow on YouTube. Yeah, just below, yeah, just below the center of the planet, you can see this like bright circle, mm-hmm. and that's the base of the mountain. Okay, great. Yeah. Darren, did, was there any? Did you have any closing uh, thoughts? Um. Well, uh, there's a lot to talk about, obviously, for perhaps another time. Sure. Um, there's, uh, I enjoyed being here, and uh, the, the night sky is an amazing thing. I encourage listeners to go up and look at it, learn the night sky with some simple apps or star maps, learn the planets and how to watch the dance of the planets. It's a fun thing. And, um, and to just educate yourself and discover the hobby of astronomy. It's an amazing thing. It's been a passion of mine since I was a little kid, and I'll always have this passion. So I hope uh, other people can share it and discover this passion uh, moving forward. Well, thank you both. Thank you both for uh, everything you've taught me, for sticking with me, and for always informing me of what I can see here in Chicago. (laughs) I really appreciate it. And I look forward to staying in touch. And both of you can be found on Facebook. That's another thing I will add to the show notes is your Facebook accounts, where you post a lot of interesting information about astronomy. So I am going to read the outro. Please visit the website, speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free.
This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeartRadio, and it will be available later on our YouTube channel. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device, simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts or on TuneIn. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with special thanks to James A. McDivitt Elementary School, and a special dedication to XAI Archangel Musk, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to a special quarantine edition of Speaking of Young. <laughs>